Tonight's talk is brought to you by Saint Eutychus. You know the story of Eutychus, right? He was a young man who we would not know at all, except that he very famously fell asleep in a talk. It was a very long talk, and you can read the account of it in Acts chapter 20. Uh, it was a Sunday, according to Luke in Acts 20, the church was gathered together, the Apostle Paul himself was visiting, and he was leaving the next day. So Paul kept on speaking and speaking and speaking, Luke says, until midnight. Now, um, oh, I haven't got to the best bit. Eutychus was a young bloke sitting in the window while Paul talked and in, sinking into a deep sleep as Paul just talked on and on, the problem was they were meeting on the third floor. And Eutychus, being sound asleep, fell out of the window and he hit the ground and died. And Paul ran down, threw himself on the young man's body, cradled him in his arms and miraculously the guy was revived. That's pretty awesome. But the most amazing thing about the story is actually what happened next. Because then they went upstairs and Luke says they broke bread together, they had something to eat, and then Paul picked up where he left off and he kept talking <laughs> until dawn. Nothing would put Paul off, not even a death in the middle of the talk. Now, anyone else might have taken that as a bit of a sign that, no, maybe enough is enough. God's been gracious enough to bring the poor guy back to life. Maybe you should just stop now, but not Paul. A bit of a supper break, and on we go till dawn. And then I love how Luke records his, you know, he finishes his recollection. He says, then Paul left. Meanwhile, they had taken the boy away alive, were greatly comforted. <laughs> Possibly by the fact that Paul had finally finished. So I have two bits of good news for you tonight. First, even though it is the last night, I do not plan on speaking until dawn. Second, if you do fall asleep, at least we're on the ground floor. So you don't have two fall to fall. Uh, that's good news because I don't think God's given me the gift of raising the dead. Uh, but you should settle in, possibly. This is going to be a big night because we have so much wonderful truths to discover in God's Word tonight. Truly. Um, the topic tonight is the return of Jesus under the heading of when he comes. It's page 31. Now, I'm going to tell you, though, right up front where we're going tonight. God's Word, I think, is going to challenge us with three things. Here they are, right up front. First, if you are not yet a follower of Jesus, then what we'll read in God's Word tonight, I think will encourage you to repent, to turn to Jesus in trust. Second, if you are a follower of Jesus, God's Word to you tonight, I think, is going to urge you to keep on living for Him until He comes. And third, God's Word is going to exhort us to proclaim this Jesus. And the particular spin I want to put on that tonight is that which Peter Leslie has already broached for us. The particular spin I want us to think about is would you consider giving yourself to university student ministry? So let's pray and get underway.
Heavenly Father, we thank you for this enormous privilege. It is, as Peter has reminded us, to be here together, gathered around your word, with such freedom, in such luxury, with such time. We pray, Father, that you, by your Spirit, would enable us to grasp your word, that you would write it deep into our minds and hearts, that you would transform our lives, and that we might be good stewards of your truth and use it to bring glory to Jesus in our life and those you bring us into contact with. For Jesus' sake, Amen. So let's start. We're going to have a break partway through and uh, sing together, but uh, we're going to start there on page 31. We start with an ancient but actually a very contemporary ridicule. I'm looking there on page 31 from 2 Peter chapter 3. The Apostle Peter here quotes some scoffers in his day, but maybe you've heard this same thing. Where is this coming? He promised. Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. Have you heard that sort of ridicule of the Christian faith, that Jesus supposedly will return? 2,000 years, it's a long time to wait, maybe he forgot. Well, the EU knows where it stands. Believing Jesus will return is one of the fundamentals affirmed in the EU's doctrinal basis. And it's there on your page. The Sydney Uni Evangelical Union upholds the fundamental truths of Christianity, including, one of the statements, the expectation of the personal return of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what the EU believes. Mind you, the EU is in good historical company here in holding this seemingly ridiculous belief because the classic historical creeds of the Christian faith affirm this same truth. So this is from the Nicene-Constantinople Creed, dates way back to 381 AD. You might be familiar with a version of this creed. We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father from where he will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. This is what Christians believe. Jesus will come back. Why do we have this expectation? Well, it's because Jesus promised that he'd come back. It's simple, really. John chapter 14, there on your page, Jesus says, I'm going away to prepare a place for you. If I go away and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself so that where I am, you may be also. Well, you might remember that statement we've looked at already this week from the divine messengers at Jesus' ascension. They said, men of Galilee, why do you stand there just gaping up into heaven? This Jesus who's been taken from you into heaven will come in the same way you've seen him go. So that's why we expect Jesus to return. But what do you think it'll actually be like when Jesus comes back? Did you notice the hymn that we just, just sang? There's one particular verse, and I can't remember the exact words, but it said something like, we will, his saints will meet him in the air. Really? Did you think twice, by the way, when you sang that line? Do you know that you sang that line? Were you thinking about the words? You should think about the words. 
Is that right? What are we expecting? Well, do you remember the diagram that we first saw in talk two, when we were looking at the pattern in the Old Testament of the day of the Lord? The Lord makes a promise. You remember the picture? The Lord makes a promise. And so the Lord then comes to fulfill His promise, and He comes in rescue and judgment, right? That's the pattern. So we're expecting the Lord to come, aren't we? We would expect Him to come, therefore, in rescue and judgment. So tonight's talk's very simple, three parts. The Lord comes, judgment, then we sing a song, rescue. This really is like those super gross sort of McDonald's burgers that have two patties. You're getting two talks for the price of one talk tonight, and you didn't even know it. We're going to do one talk, we're going to praise God, and then we'll do another talk. But it's going to be a shorter talk, okay? So it's all cool. All right, here we go. Part A, the coming of the Lord Jesus. So bottom page 31, and by the way, I don't intend to do everything on the outline, I'm just going to jump through them and you can take it away and read it later. At the bottom of page 31, there are a few passages from the New Testament that talk about the future coming of the Lord Jesus. I've just put them in there to show you the different language that the New Testament uses. You start there with a verse on the right-hand side from James 5. James talks about the Lord's coming. The word is parousia. You might have heard that before, some of you, if you read sort of Bible theological books. But then underneath that, from 2 Thessalonians 1, the same event is described as the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. I think that's helpful. When Jesus comes, it's not just that He comes and appears, He's revealed. See, at the moment, the living and ruling Lord Jesus Christ, He's hidden from our eyes, but on that day, He's going to be revealed for every eye to see. We'll behold Him in His glory as the living and ruling Son of Man. Now, when you reflect on it, that's going to be a pretty confronting day, isn't it? For a lot of people. The Jesus whom they denied. The Jesus whom they rejected. The Jesus whom they left. The Jesus they denounced or belittled. He will appear. He'll be revealed in all His authority and glory and power. And that will be a very confronting day. It'll be a day of great clarity. There'll be no more uncertainty or dispute about who Jesus is. No, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It's going to be a day of great joy for some and a day of weeping and gnashing of teeth for others. How that shapes our priorities then, that that day is coming, we're going to explore tonight. But while we're still thinking about this future appearance of Jesus, note also on the left-hand side then how Paul describes it in 1 Thessalonians 4. For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the archangel's voice and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first, then we who are still alive will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Oh, so maybe the hymn was right after all. There you go. Yes, of course, the hymn writer was taken Scripture and put it to song so you might know what's in the Scriptures and remember it better. 
Now, this little passage raises a really helpful question for us. What sort of event, though, are we actually expecting? What will it actually be like? Will we see Jesus physically descending through the atmosphere, shouting with a trumpet playing? And will we all start levitating up with the Christians who've been raised from the dead to meet Jesus in the clouds? Cumulonimbus or Cirrus? Now, I take this passage seriously because it's God's Word to us. But I do want to ask, am I reading it rightly? What should I expect from this verse? Should I expect to see it fulfilled literally? Well, maybe. Certainly, I want to say it is possible for God to do it exactly like that. After all, he made the universe out of nothing. He can do that. But it's worth noting that even this description is full of imagery from the Old Testament. But because we just don't read our Old Testaments very much, we miss it. So the trumpet of God goes back to when God came down to meet the Israelites at Mount Sinai. The cloud is from Daniel 7 that we saw on Tuesday night in the Son of Man. The shout as Jesus descends echoes Old Testament passages where the Lord lets out a thunderous shout when He comes in judgment and rescue. We actually saw two examples of that on Monday night in Psalm 18 and Joel chapter 2. But also the picture Paul is painting here echoes the arrival, what used to happen in the arrival of a great victorious king. If your king had won a great battle and was returning to the city... You would not wait in the city for him, you'd rush out on the road leading to the city, meet him out there on the road, and then come back into the city with him. You didn't stay out there on the road. Having met him, you came back with him into the city. See, it's not that we stay with Jesus in the air. Where's he headed? To earth. We meet him in the air and, I presume, come with him to where he's headed, to the earth. And you actually see something like this in the Old Testament when King David brought the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. So the Ark was this box that God told them to make, had the Ten Commandments in it, and more importantly, it symbolised God's presence with his people. And you can read about it in 2 Samuel Samuel chapter 6, verse 15, we're told, David... And the entire house of Israel, so all of God's people, were bringing up the ark of the Lord to Jerusalem, to the city, with shouts and the sound of trumpets. Does that sound a bit familiar? All of God's people gathered together with shouts and trumpets. My point is just that this description from Paul is full of imagery from the Old Testament. So I just want to be careful about how literally I'm going to interpret every single detail in it. I'm not saying that it won't happen that way. I'm just pointing out that Paul is using a lot of Old Testament imagery in his description of the event. Now, mind you, the big point Paul's trying to make is crystal clear in this passage. His point is just whether you are alive or whether you are dead when Jesus appears, as a Christian, you have nothing to fear We will all be raised or transformed to be with Jesus forever. And that is deeply encouraging. 
Okay, so we've thought a little bit about the coming of the Lord Jesus. When He comes, He comes in judgment and rescue. So I'm now on to page 32, judgment. Now, just so you know where we're going, there's four things about this future judgment that we're going to talk about, and they're numbered one to four in this section on pages 32 to 34 of your book. So the first thing to say about judgment, the future judgment that Jesus will bring is, there on the outline, judgment flows out of the character of a good and holy God. Now, like me, you've probably heard many times the complaint, if God really loves us, then why does He judge us? Why doesn't He just say it's all all right? Why doesn't He just sweep whatever problems there are under the carpet? If He really loved us, wouldn't He just accept us? See, the short answer is, if God did do that, you could not really call Him just. It's, it's not in God's character, actually, to be so callous to overlook the genuine injustices that are committed throughout human history. Have a look there on your page at the passage from Exodus chapter 34. In this passage, God is revealing Himself to Moses. He's telling Moses who He, the one true living God, is. And He says, The Lord came down in a cloud. Seriously, these clouds are everywhere, aren't they? Like, they're just everywhere, now that you notice it. And it's not an accident, actually. The Lord came down in a cloud, stood with Moses there, and proclaimed His name, Yahweh. Then the Lord passed in front of Moses and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, rich in faithful love and truth, maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, forgiving wrongdoing, rebellion and sin, but He will not leave the guilty unpunished. Yes, of course, God is loving and gracious and forgiving, but He will not let the guilty go unpunished. If He were, if He were to turn a blind eye to evil, how would that be good? If you look at the second speech bubble there on your page, Tom Wright puts it like this. He says, but judgment is necessary unless we were to conclude absurdly that nothing much is wrong, or blasphemously, that God doesn't very much mind. See, if you really think that there is nothing wrong, that there's no travesties that need to be put right, for which the perpetrators ought to give an account, then I just think you're not living in the real world. In the real world, someone needs to answer for the Holocaust for the ethnic cleansing atrocities, for the untold acts of domestic violence happening in homes across our country every week. Someone needs to answer for the horrific betrayal that is child abuse. Someone needs to answer for all the acts of hatred, for all the individual and the systemic neglect of the defenceless. 
Someone needs to take responsibility for all the, well, stuff you, it's just all about me, really, attitude that we get all the time. We see it in, it, in people around us, we see that, that attitude in our governments, we see it in ourselves. You really think there's nothing wrong, nothing much wrong? That's absurd. And that's why God will judge the world, and that's why that's actually good news. We can't always rely on human authorities to either catch the perpetrators or actually convict those who are really guilty. But the good news is that God will make sure justice is done. And that's good news, which is why, point two there on page 32, the future judgment of the world is actually part of the gospel or the good news announcement about Jesus. So in Romans chapter 2, Paul talks about that day when according to my gospel, God through Jesus Christ will judge the secret thoughts of all. See, the grand announcement that we have for the world from God is this, Jesus is Lord and He's the judge of all. And that's good news because injustice will finally be put right when He comes. although it is a bit confronting too, isn't it? Because we're told He's going to judge the secret thoughts of all, including me and you. So just a reflective thought here, does your gospel include Jesus the judge? I don't mean in terms of what you believe, because you probably believe that, but in terms of what you're committed to announcing Now, I understand our reluctance to announce the judgment that Jesus will bring. It is a terribly confronting message. We don't like it when we feel judged by someone else, let alone then announcing to our non-Christian friends that they're going to be judged by Jesus and found wanting. It seems arrogant. It sounds offensive. Surely a better message is to focus on the love of Jesus and win people that way. Isn't that just a smarter approach? Well, three thoughts about that very quickly. First, I'm not saying just preach judgment. That sounds like the hellfire and brimstone preaching that you still hear sometimes, but which seems to me to be all about scaring people into the kingdom. That's not right. What we want to do is keep the balance of the Scriptures and not become lopsided one way or the other. We can't only talk about love when we know judgment is coming, and we must not only talk about judgment when the most fundamental thing you can say about God is that God is love. So, second observation, I think in our own Christian circles, we've actually abandoned the positive aspect of judgment. That actually, as human beings, when we experience this world, we want someone to put things right, and the good news of the Christian gospel is God has said He will in Jesus. We actually need to recapture the biblical goodness of judgment, and I think be unafraid of announcing it to our world as part of God's response to the problems of the world that our world even identifies. 
And the final thought here, love and judgment are not opposites. It's actually because God loves that He judges the world. He wants to get rid of the sin and the evil that destroys His creatures. And that's why God destroys wickedness. It's because He loves us and because He hears our cries for justice that He will come in judgment in the person of Jesus. Now, just on the side, while we're talking about this stuff, uh, if you haven't done it already, can I encourage you, if you want to think more about this stuff, can I encourage you to do the EU Fusion course, Getting Into Evangelism? It's a shameless plug here, shameless because I think it would really help you to think through these sorts of issues together. So especially if you're in first year, amongst other things, it'll help you get a fuller picture of the gospel from the Bible, help you tackle these issues like how Jesus as judge fits into God's gospel for your friends. We're going to run heaps of these getting into evangelism courses in second semester Talk to the Howie, the staff worker in your faculty. Talk to a friend who's been in the EU for a while. We'll make sure you get hooked up with one of those things. Okay, so I've seen that Jesus coming as judge flows out of the character of God, the good character of God. It's part of his great announcement of good news to the world. What else can we say? Well, point three. What can we say about this judgment that's coming? And there's four aspects here to this judgment that Jesus will bring. First, it's a judgment that even reaches beyond death. And these are Jesus' own words in John chapter 5. Do not be amazed at this, he says, because a time is coming when all those who are in the graves will hear the Son of Man's voice and come out. Those who have done good things to the resurrection of life, but those who have done wicked things to the resurrection of judgment. So even the dead will be judged by Jesus. And Christians are not exempt either. Point B there on your outline, the judgment includes us all Christians too. So the Apostle Paul, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, starts by talking about himself when he says, so whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For all of us must appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each may receive recompense or appropriate sort of repayment for what has been done in the body, whether good or evil. Now, cast your minds back just for a moment. When we looked at the Old Testament pattern of the day of the Lord, you might remember from Monday night, how the prophet spoke about a day when God would come and he would hold the entire world, all of humanity, he would hold them all accountable for sin. Well, when has that day happened? Well, it hasn't yet, but it will in Christ when he comes. That's what Paul's just talked about here. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Jesus. Jesus is the fulfillment of that Old Testament promise. He's the one who's been appointed by God as the judge and will all appear before his judgment seat. I want to let that sink in for a minute. I'm going to appear 
before Jesus, He's my judge. And so will you. So will every single human being. It'd be good to know what standard He's going to use, wouldn't it? Now, see, I mean, I have assumed that by now, even if you're just in first year, well, maybe you haven't worked out if you're in first year at uni, so maybe this is going to be really helpful for you. I assume you've sort of worked out that the most important lectures to go to in any semester are the first lecture and the last two. The first one, the first one is important because that's when you're told when the assignments are due, what the textbook is, and what's the email of the lecturer so you can apply for extensions. <laughs> and then you need to go to the last two lectures in the semester because that's where you can pick up the hints about the exam. And you need to go to the last two because some lectures have wised up that students just turn up to the last one to get the hints so sometimes they give it out a lecture early. So you need to go to the last two. See, because an exam is a type of judgment, isn't it? That's what it is. They're judging whether or not you've mastered this course. And you want to know what the standard is going to be when you face the judgment. Well, here it is. According to the New Testament, point C at the top of page 33, Jesus is going to judge us all according to the life that we've lived. Does it reflect genuine faith or not? Now, I'm reading here from the book of Revelation, Revelation 20, 11 to 15. John's describing this coming judgment. He says, Then I saw a great white throne and one seated on it, Earth and heaven fled from his presence, and no place was found for them. I also saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged according to their works by what was written in the books. Then the sea gave up its dead, and death and Hades gave up their dead, all were judged according to their works. Death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And anyone not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. So in this picture, right, there's two different sets of books. There are the books that contain our works and then there is this other book, the book of life. And everyone is judged according to their works as recorded in the first set of books. And anyone whose name is not found in the other book, the book of life, is thrown into the lake of fire, which is the final judgment, condemnation. Now, I don't think there is any indication in this particular passage that the one book, the book of life, tells a different story to the books that have your works in them. They actually seem in this picture to be working together in a complementary way, as though they both tell the same story from different sides. The book of life 
is the book of God's choice. He graciously writes your name there as an act of pure, undeserved grace. The books that record your works reflect your response to God. If you've had genuine faith in the Lord Jesus, your life will show that. God can look at your life and he will see the evidence of genuine faith, which corresponds to your name being written in Jesus' book of life. Now, that message is a constant message throughout the whole of the Bible. Genuine faith in the living God will always be reflected in the life that you lead. And so God can and he will judge us by our deeds since they are a true indicator of our faith. And in the New Testament, you can, you can chase it up in places like I've got there on your page. James chapter 2, 14 to 26. Romans chapter 2, 6 to 11. Matthew chapter 7, 15 to 20. Now, what you need to do, though, here is tread carefully, right? In saying that God can and will judge us by our deeds, I'm not saying that the standard God is looking for when he looks at your life is perfection. And I'm also not saying that you can be good enough for God. Because you can't. God always gives salvation as a gift, undeserved, and he gives it to those who have faith in Christ. But genuine faith will always show itself in how you live your life. It won't look like perfection. None of us are yet entirely free of sin. It won't look like being good enough because... Well, you won't be good enough to deserve it on your own. That's why it's grace. It's undeserved. What God is looking for in your life is faith, trust in Him. And what characterizes the life of faith is not perfection. It's not being good enough. It's repentance is what characterizes the life of faith. That when you're confronted by sin in your life, you humbly bring yourself to God, cry out for His mercy, take hold of His forgiveness and seek in the power of His Spirit within you to put that sin to death. Now, even as you hear that, if you're a Christian, you might well be thinking, yeah, that's a little reminder, I need to get my act together. Well, if that's the case, if there is sin in your life that you know does not fit with being a follower of Jesus then yeah, get your act together. Get rid of that sin. Put it to death in the power of the Spirit. Not because you need to be perfect in order to pass Jesus' judgment. Not because you're trying to be good enough for Him, but because what characterizes you as a follower of Jesus is repentance. You're someone Jesus has set free from slavery to sin's power. And you know God's amazing grace. So in the power and the encouragement he provides from his word and from his spirit and from your Christian sisters and brothers around you, put that sin behind you. Now, if you know that you're not a Christian, if you haven't yet made that fundamental decision to turn to God and to follow Jesus, the outlook here under judgment is not good for you. But remember the consistent message of the Bible. 
that we've seen again and again this week is that God's invitation to you to receive life stands open. The prospect of judgment is fearful and real, but God's heart is that you would take hold of the grace and the forgiveness that He offers you in Jesus. I'm going to talk a bit more about that in a little while. Okay, I'm going to skip over point D there, part of the cleanup. I've already talked about that, really. So let's go over the page, page 34, and ask again, this time as we think about this judgment to come, but what are we expecting? Now, by now, you're getting pretty used to reading this, or at least identifying this cosmic language we find in the Bible at different points. And here's one passage from Revelation 6, this is 12 to 17, where this future judgment by Jesus is described. My question is this as we read it, what's the truth that's wrapped in the metaphor? Okay, what's the truth that's wrapped in this metaphor? Then I saw him open the sixth seal. A violent earthquake occurred, the sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair, The entire moon became like blood. The stars of heaven fell to the earth as a fig tree drops its unripe figs when shaken by a high wind. The sky separated like a scroll being rolled up and every mountain and island was moved from its place. Then the kings of the earth, the nobles, the military commanders, the rich, the powerful... And every slave and free person hid in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us, hide us from the face of the one seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, because the great day of their wrath has come. And who is able to stand? That's quite a picture. Now notice the heading I've got there in the box on your page. How do we become better readers of God's Word when we read passages like this? I want to say, if you're going to be a wise reader of the Bible, then you've got to distinguish the words used on the page of the Bible from the ideas and the images they describe And those ideas and images need to be distinguished from the real thing, like what those ideas and images correspond to in our experience. It's this middle step of identifying the ideas and images that's quite important. Otherwise, you jump straight from the words on the page to our experience when the writers are actually using sometimes metaphors or images or symbols and you miss it and that becomes a problem. So, for example, we saw, read earlier, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Okay, what's, let's, let's practice this. What's the idea or the image there? Well, the image is of a first century judicial figure who would sit up higher than you on their seat of judgment and you would appear standing before him, awaiting his verdict. That's the image. What's the idea there? Well, the idea is that we will all be held personally accountable for the life that we've lived. We'll be held accountable by Jesus. 
well, what's the real thing? What will that be like in my experience? If I just think about it for a moment, if we were all to line up, every individual who's ever lived, billions and billions of human beings, and literally take turns one before the other in front of Jesus, that is going to take a long time, isn't it? Yeah? Now, maybe it will take place like that, I don't know. But what we need to do is to hold on tight to the idea, the truth, wrapped inside that metaphor, that picture. And the truth is, every one of us will face judgment for our life. Hold on tight to that, even as we hold on maybe a bit more loose to what it will actually be like in my experience, because I'm not quite sure. It's only described to me in a picture. So given that sort of distinction, come back then to that terrible passage I just read in Revelation 6. You can see that unless you add that middle step, you end up with actually quite a bit of a problem in Revelation chapter 6. For example, verse 13 said, the stars of heaven fall to the earth. Now, just in terms of astronomy, that's a bit challenging, right? Stars are those enormous balls of exploding gas or something, or other, but they're massive and they're fire. And to have all of those stars of the universe fall onto the earth, that's a... No, this is cosmic, apocalyptic language, right? We're not meant to take it literally as a description of the real thing in our experience. The better question to ask is, what, what are the ideas and the images here? What's the truth wrapped inside the metaphor? Well, the truth here is that when Jesus brings the final judgment, it will be terrifying. Isn't that the picture? No one will escape not from the greatest king to the lowliest slave, and people will long to escape his judgment. Because the great day of the wrath of the Lamb has come. And they will say, who is able to stand? Now, what will that be like in our experience? I don't know. But the truth is the terrifying reality of judgment. Who will be able to stand? Now, the good news, the Christian good news of the Gospel is, because you've been here all week, you know the answer to that question, actually. In fact, you've heard that question before. And now you're going, when? (laughs) You heard it before in Joel chapter 2 on Monday night. Ah. See, it's a deliberate echo of Joel chapter 2. And the answer is given in Joel chapter 2. Who's able to stand when the day of the Lord, the terrible day of the Lord comes? And the answer is, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Those who call on Jesus, who turn to Jesus while there is still time, they are the ones who will be able to stand because they have accepted God's offer of rescue. And that then brings us to the terrible reality of hell. Now first, just to clarify some facts about the words you see in Scripture about hell, there are two different words used in your Bible which have different meanings. 
Uh, the first is the word Hades in Greek or Sheol in Hebrew, and that's really the place of the dead. It's not hell as such as we usually understand it. And you can find some examples there of where it's used like that. You can chase them up. But you can see that Hades, as the place of the dead, is distinguished from the place of final punishment. And uh, one place where that happens is in Revelation chapter 20, verse 13 and 14, which I read before. Then the sea gave up its dead, and death and Hades gave up their dead. There was Hades. All were judged according to their works. Death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death. The lake of fire there is the picture of what we normally call hell. So Hades and, and hell, they're referring to different things. The word hell itself is a translation of a Greek word, um, Gehenna. I don't know if it was explained in your community channel this morning, as it was in some. Um, originally, this was a place, a terrible place, outside of Jerusalem, a place that in the Old Testament was sometimes used as a place of child sacrifice, which is basically the most evil thing you can encounter in the Old Testament. And uh, God then uses this place, Gehenna, where these terrible things happened, as a symbol of His judgment on Israel's rebellion in Jeremiah chapter 7. And later it became the rubbish tip, the actual place became the rubbish tip for the city of Jerusalem and that's hence the references to fire and worms because they would, the rubbish would burn and the worms feasted. So for example in Isaiah 66 you can see that. And then Jesus picked it up and used this place, Gehenna, hell, to describe the judgment of God. So as we think about hell, we're going to have to think about these same three things. It's description in Scripture, the reality to which these descriptions point, and then what's the clear take-home message. So point A at the bottom of page 34. The descriptions in Scripture, I'm just going to read 2 Thessalonians 1, 6-10 there on your page. It is righteous, says Paul, for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to reward with rest you who are afflicted along with us. This will take place at the revelation of the Lord Jesus from heaven with his powerful angels, taking vengeance with flaming fire on those who don't know God and on those who don't obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction from the Lord's presence and from His glorious strength. In that day when He comes to be glorified by His saints and to be admired by those who have believed because our testimony among you was believed. So you notice a few things here about what we call hell. It's God's vengeance on those who have refused to bow the knee to Him. It's the penalty you pay for opposing God. It's described as eternal destruction and flaming fire. And on the next page, you can see a whole list of different ways it's described in the New Testament. It's where their worm never dies and the fire is not quenched. It's a lake of fire of burning sulfur. It's an eternal fire. It's a place of torment. 
It's darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's eternal punishment. It's wrath, fury, trouble and distress. It's the second death. It's the raging fire that consumes. It's everlasting destruction. These are the images and the words the New Testament uses to describe this final wrath of God against sin. Now, just as we talked a minute ago, we need to be careful that we don't jump unthinkingly from these words on the page to the real thing. We have to get our heads around the images and the ideas expressed here, discern the truth wrapped in this metaphor. I mean, is hell literally a lake of burning sulphur and at the same time a raging fire and at the same time utter darkness? I mean, if you have a fire, you have light. So how can you have that? You just see that if... If you jump straight to the literal, it doesn't work. But just because you can't read it all, to, all literally together, that does not actually make it not true. You need to remember these are images communicating a truth. So point B there on page 35, what is the reality to which these images point? And I have four points to make about the reality of hell, I think, from these New Testament descriptions. First of all, hell is the wrath of God, the anger, the just anger of God against unrepentant sinners. And I don't want you to make a mistake here, right? The teaching of the whole Bible is very clear. God will pour out His wrath against all sin. The terrible end of judgment, which we started to see way, way, way back on Monday night in the Old Testament prophets, that terrible end of judgment, that promise of judgment, will find its fulfilment in hell, where God's wrath is poured out on unrepentant sinners. And Paul says in Romans 2 verse 5, but because of your hardness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment is revealed. Now, there are lots of things that you can store up in the world. You know, when I was a kid, because I was boring, I stored up stamps. Maybe you store up music. How many songs do you have, by the way, on your iPod or iPhone? And our society, just as an old say, is deeply committed to storing up money for ourselves. But out of all the things you could store up for yourself in all the world, surely storing up wrath would be the most foolish. It's the most mind-numbingly, terrifyingly foolish thing to do. Why store up God's wrath for yourself? Imagine it piling higher and higher and higher and then one day it cashing in. Because what Paul says here, if you won't repent, if you won't come to God and take His offer of mercy, 
then that's what you're doing. You're storing up wrath for yourself. Hell will be the experience of that wrath of God that people have been storing up for themselves. Now, the second aspect to the reality of hell is that hell will be a real separation and exclusion from the kingdom and the great blessings of God. The New Testament consistently says that there is no future for unrepentant sinners in the kingdom of God. Uh, so Galatians chapter 5, 21, those who keep on living in the flesh, Paul says, will not inherit the kingdom of God. The picture of the kingdom in Revelation 21, 22 shows that those who persist in refusal to trust Jesus are tragically left outside the city. Hell will be a real separation and exclusion from the fulfilled promises of God. Third, hell is final and eternal. Now, there's actually quite a few questions people ask here about the final and eternal nature of hell, and I think it's actually worthwhile us taking a moment just to explore some of these questions to try to get some clarity together. So I've listed two of the questions there on your page. First of all, what about the Roman Catholic belief about purgatory? How does that fit in? See, in Roman Catholic thinking, most Christians, Christians, when they die, they don't go to heaven, at least not straight away. When you die as a Christian, in the Roman Catholic understanding, you go to purgatory, which is a place where you are purified through suffering to make you holy enough to enter heaven. That's according to their catechism, their, like their, their teaching document. But purgatory has at least two fatal problems. First, it's just not in the Bible. The passages that are claimed to support it are either strained or misread, I think, and really that, that should be the end of the story. The sec- it has a second fatal problem too, though. It doesn't fit with what the Bible does everywhere teach, that Christ's death was sufficient for our salvation, that we are united to Him by faith, as we saw last night, and so His justification and sanctification has truly become ours because we're united to Him. And so Tom Wright puts it like this, purgatory, he says, was a late Western innovation, that is, it doesn't go right back to the, you know, the apostles and the early fathers, it's a late Western innovation without biblical support and its supposed theological foundations are now questioned by leading Roman Catholic theologians themselves. As the Reformers insisted, bodily death itself is the destruction of the sinful person, and I'd add, actually, your death with Christ is the destruction of the sinful person. There is nothing left to purge. Any suggestion that purgatory was necessary as punishment for sins is, of course, abhorrent to anyone who has even a faint understanding of Paul, who teaches that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. The sufferings of the present time, not of some post-mortem state, are the valley through which we have to pass in order to reach the glorious future. So I think you can stop worrying about purgatory. Jesus is enough. But the second question people ask is, what about opportunities to turn to Jesus after death? Is hell really final? Won't there be any opportunity for people to repent once Jesus comes back and they realise their mistake? Now, Rob Bell 
amongst others, says, well, surely there will be opportunities after death to become a Christian, to turn to Christ. Surely there will be, if God is really love. Let me read to you what he's uh, written here. At the centre of the Christian tradition, so he says, since the first church, have been a number who've insisted that history is not tragic, hell is not forever, and love in the end wins. And all will be reconciled to God. Can God bring proper lasting justice, banishing certain actions and the people who do them from the new creation, while at the same time allowing and waiting and hoping for the possibility of the reconciliation of those very same people, keeping the gates, in essence, open? Will everyone eventually be reconciled to God? Or will there be those who do cling to their version of their story, insisting on their right to be their own little God, ruling their own little miserable kingdom? Those are questions, or more accurately, those are tensions we are free to leave fully intact. We don't need to resolve them or answer them because we can't, and so we simply respect them, creating space for the freedom that love requires. Now, I feel what Rob Bell says, I feel why he says it, the thought of millions of people in hell shocks us. It should. It makes us weep. But ultimately, we need to be guided not by our feelings if we take the Bible seriously as God's Word. If the Bible really is God's Word, we have to submit to what the Scripture does teach And nowhere in the Scripture is such an opportunity after death to turn to Jesus clearly held out as a viable option. And on the flip side, everywhere in Scripture, the emphasis is on turn to Jesus now. Because, like before, it's too late. According to 2 Peter 3, the reason Jesus has not returned is because God is patiently waiting for people to turn to Him. That would make no sense, wouldn't it, if you could turn to Him after death as well. Why would he be waiting now then? So as I say, let's not ignore today as the day of God's invitation. Don't ignore it. Hebrews 4 is a place where that sort of language is used. And so uh, Robert Peterson has said, no, this is wrong. Today is the day of God's invitation. He says, these speculative doctrines of post-mortem opportunity for salvation must be rejected for they not only lack biblical authority, they fly in the face of the teaching of Jesus and the apostles. Well, the fourth reality about hell is over the page, at the top of page 36. Hell is the just response of the sovereign God to genuine human agency and responsibility. C.S. Lewis famously put it like this on your page, There are only two kinds of people, he said, in the end. Those who say to God, your will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, your will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. If you are determined to turn your back on God, then ultimately God says, okay, that's your choice, and he turns his back on you. 
It's God's just response to our response to our decision. Now, there is also a flip side of that same coin that upholds God's sovereignty even over our genuine agency and decision. But in the Bible, God's sovereignty never takes away from this truth that we are rightly held responsible by Him for our genuine decisions. But there are a couple more questions that come out about hell even at this point. First, is hell eternal conscious torment then? Or is it a period of conscious torment ending in annihilation? I don't know why the printing stuffed up there, but... First, is hell eternal conscious torment? Or conscious torment ending in annihilation? Uh, There is a debate amongst evangelicals whether hell does consist in an eternity of conscious torment in parallel to the eternal life of the saved. Uh, John Stott holds the second view that hell might not be eternal conscious torment but rather a period of conscious torment followed by annihilation where you cease to exist. I read from the quote there on your page, I do not dogmatise about the position to which I have come, I hold it tentatively, he says, but I do plead for frank dialogue among evangelicals on the basis of Scripture. I also believe that the ultimate annihilation of the wicked should at least be accepted as a legitimate biblically founded alternative to their eternal conscious torment. So John Stott, as an evangelical, that is someone who's committed to submitting to whatever scripture rightly understood is found to teach, he says an ultimate annihilation of sinners after a period of conscious torment does fit with the biblical descriptions of hell. Now, other evangelicals disagree with that, and having examined the relevant passages, Robert Raymond, one of them, writes this there on your page. He says, I must conclude that the doctrines of the final judgment and of hell for the impenitent and the unbeliever are among the cardinal, that is important and fundamental, that's what cardinal means, important and fundamental doctrines of the Christian faith, and that conscious eternal torment awaits the unrepentant sinner. These things, he says, are spoken of clearly and plainly in the New Testament. Now, I just want to emphasise that on this question, the evangelicals are divided. And when there's a genuine dispute amongst our evangelical brothers and sisters, at the end of the day, we need to make up our own mind, based though, not on what you'd like to be true, not even on your latest evangelical hero and what they think is true, as though you've got some sort of, you know, Protestant Pope that you're following. You need to make a decision based on what you think the Bible is actually teaching. But where there is dispute, even amongst Bible-believing evangelicals, I think John Stott is wise when he comes to, his, he comes to a view, but then he says, I hold it tentatively. I'm open to having my view challenged and revised by the Scriptures. And when evangelicals are divided on issue, that's, that has a smell of wisdom about it to me. Now, after everything we've talked about this week, the answer to the next question probably won't surprise you. Who ends up in hell? Well, the answer is all who are without Christ. The Apostle John writes, This is the testimony. God has given us eternal life. This life is in His Son. The one who has the Son has life. The one who does not have the Son does not have life. 
So there's no ambiguity here. If you don't have Jesus, you don't have life. Though that then raises another question. Is there hope for those who've never heard of Jesus? Well, on that point too, there's a bit of a discussion going on about whether it's possible that someone who's never heard with understanding of Christ may be able to save by Him. I'm not going to go through the different arguments here. I'll just point out that I've got some quotes here you can read. Norman Anderson says, Yes, it's possible for someone who's never heard of Jesus to still be saved if God works in their heart so that they respond with faith to what they know. John Piper says, no, that, it, there's nowhere in the Scripture that says that will happen. So, no, that's not possible, says Piper. Uh, John Stott just says, well, he thinks the Bible isn't clear enough on it, that actually the most Christian response, he says, is actually to, to acknowledge that the Scripture doesn't give us a clear answer and therefore the right answer is, well, we just don't know, but we know God's character. Now, I'll leave you to read and explore those particular quotes over that question. Let's move down then to page 37, the clear point of this, and then we'll break. The clear point. Three things. I think the point of all this teaching in the Bible about the final judgment, which started way back in the prophets, but now has been made clear to us that it will come with the return of Jesus. The message is judgment will come justice will be done and all wickedness and evil will be eradicated and that is good news at a fundamental level for all of creation that is good news but second in light of this truth you should fear God In Luke 12, on your page, Jesus says, And I say to you, my friends, don't fear those who can kill your body and after that can do nothing more. But I will show you the one to fear. Fear him who has the authority to throw people into hell after death. Yes, I say to you, this is the one to fear. But then notice that Jesus goes straight on to address that fear. He says, yes, have a right fear of God. And then he says, aren't five sparrows sold for two pennies? Yet not one of them is forgotten in God's sight. Indeed, the hairs of your head are all counted. Don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. So you should fear God, but don't be afraid. Fear God because hell and the experience of His wrath against sin, that's real. Fear Him but don't be afraid because you are precious to Him. And that's why He sent Jesus to be your Saviour so that you might take hold of Jesus by faith and have life, not hell. So if you jump then down to the third point, Jesus says, avoid hell at all costs. And you read this passage this morning in your community channels. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. So friend, don't be fooled. An unrepentant life of sin is a highway to hell. 
Jesus says, do whatever it takes to get off that highway. Now, unfortunately, the actual act of gouging out your eye or cutting off your hand will not eradicate sin from your life because sin comes from our heart and our mind, not literally our eyeball or my fingers. But you get Jesus' point. Sin is that serious and hell is that real, you should do whatever it takes to avoid it. And so Jesus says, come to me in repentance and faith, and I can lift you off that highway. Come and follow me on the way to life. I've done everything necessary. I took your place. I paid for your sins. I've experienced the wrath of God. I have experienced hell for you. That's how much he loves you. I would die for my family if someone broke into the house and held a gun to my head, I would die for my family. Would you experience hell for anyone? Jesus doesn't just die for you. He experiences hell to save you from it. So if you haven't yet done that, if you haven't given yourself to Jesus in repentance and faith, can I urge you with all the compassion of Christ, do it tonight. We don't know when he'll return, but we know he's coming soon. Don't put it off. If you're wavering, if you're not sure, let me encourage you. Jesus loves you more than you know And part of the reason he has not yet returned is because your Father in heaven does not want you to perish. He wants you to take hold of this salvation in Jesus, so don't put it off. 